Generations Church exists to glorify God in our community, to make disciples of Jesus, and to multiply churches so that the next generation is equipped to glorify God better than we did. Welcome to the Generations Church Podcast. I'm Jeff Ludington, lead pastor at Generations Church, and I'm in the middle of a series, a podcast series, called Questions from the Classroom. And it began as I started teaching high school Bible, and I had 17 and 18-year-old seniors, and I asked their question, what do you have questions about in your faith, uh, about Scripture, about the Bible? And what I found was that their questions are really pretty much the same questions that most adults ask. And so I figured, let's, let's take time and answer questions in a podcast format for everyone. And so as we worked our way through that, we began to open it up and take questions online, uh, through social media, other ways. In fact, if you have a question, you can email me at questions at generations.email. And so one of those questions came in, a friend I know uh, from the martial arts community, and hit me up through social media, and he said, hey, I've heard about this community of Christians called Torah Observant Christians. And he said, can you explain what that is, and what does the Bible say about that? And so as I was preparing to do that, I happened to get in contact with a friend I hadn't talked to in about two years. His name is Scott Hines. He used to be here at Generations Church. He moved out of state. And he spent about the last two years inside of a Torah observant community. Still does, still hangs out with them. But he got an inside look. There's a key verse for Torah observant Christians uh, in Matthew 5. Now it's Jesus speaking, and Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. So Jesus says, listen, I haven't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, right? And that not, uh, not a dot, not, a, you know, like crossing your T's and dotting your I's, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And so the Torah observant community believes that the Old Testament laws and festivals and Sabbath, those regulations are still in play for the, for the Christians. And so I want to take a look at that, answer the question. So I did an interview. The last episode was just an interview. I kind of introduced it and then had some closing thoughts at the end, but really just let uh, Scott speak. And this week, what I want to do for this episode is respond to that. And so my question today is, what does it mean, or what's a biblical perspective on Torah observant Christianity? And it really has to be about, what is the role of God's law? Now, there's going to be a separate conversation about Sabbath, and I'm going to do that in a separate episode, because that is going to be a unique conversation. So we're going to start with law and feasts or festivals. And so Scott has said that Israel uh, celebrates the feast, that they come out of Leviticus 23, and in, in Leviticus, there is a list of feasts and festivals, things that Israel was to, to continue to do. Again, Feast of Booths, you know, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, Passover, all those kind of things. But really what happens is they come out of an agreement between God and the people. And I want to back up before that agreement. That agreement takes place in Exodus on Mount Sinai, when God covenants with Moses. It's often called the Sinaitic Covenant, meaning from Mount Sinai, or the Mosaic Covenant, meaning made with Moses. I tend to go with Sinaitic Covenant, but either way, those are the same thing. But it predates that. It goes back and begins with a man named Abraham. In Genesis 15, it says, on the day 
the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. He said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So God calls Abraham a couple chapters before that to leave his home, his family, his life, what he's comfortable with, and to follow God. Abraham does that. He's a, gr- he's a great man of faith. He's got his highs and lows just like every other human being, but he does follow God. And so as he does, God begins to covenant with him. Now, that's the strongest word we can use for promise. God covenants with Abraham. And in this point, at this point, it is an unconditional covenant, meaning a promise from God to Abraham, not conditional upon anything Abraham does. God expands on this two chapters later in Genesis 17. And it says, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and multiply you greatly. Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. I will be their God. So this is an unconditional covenant to be a nation. He's going to make Abraham, who has no children at that time, by the way, into a nation, meaning many, many people, and much land. And he says, the land you're in right now that you're just a traveler on, you don't own, I'm going to give that to your people. And then there's this kind of hidden within the promise, promise. He says, and you will become a blessing to all the nations. And that really is a nod forward to Jesus coming from this family. So this goes on, and and Abraham has a son named Isaac, and God, after Abraham dies, covenants with Isaac. Hey, I'm going to keep my promise to your father, and I'm going to make you a great nation, give you land, etc. His son, Jacob, who becomes the man Israel, again, after he dies, God covenants with him. He has 12 sons. They become the 12 tribes of Israel. God continues that promise to these patriarchs of Israel, even to one of them, Judah. He tells him it's from your line that the Savior, the Messiah, will come. So Genesis ends with this promise unfulfilled, and Exodus begins where Genesis ended. Joseph and his brothers are in the land of Egypt, and then they die, and as promised before, 400 years of slavery ensue. And at the end of that, God calls a man named Moses to lead his people out of slavery. And in Exodus 6, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I've heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. So here's the promise. I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to give you enough land to support you. And I'm going to bring through that nation... I'm going to be their God, and they will bring my promised Messiah. So that's the, that's the idea behind the covenant to Abraham, now that is being reiterated over Israel to the man Moses. Now, the fulfillment of that starts to take place when the slaves are released and they start to wander through the desert. God is leading them and calling them to be his people. So se- excuse me, several chapters later, in Exodus 19... Israel is at the foot of Mount Sinai, and it says this. He says, there, Israel camped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, 
tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So a new covenant is given to Moses on Mount Sinai. So the Sinaitic covenant or Mosaic covenant. It's a conditional covenant made to a nation of people to make them into the promised nation to be the fulfillment of the covenant given to Abraham. So what transpires from there is Moses tells the people they agree, they're terrible at keeping their end of the covenant, but God's pretty graceful. And then Moses goes back up on the mountain. And up on Mount Sinai, God, starting in Exodus 20, gives Moses the Torah law. Exodus 20 has the Ten Commandments. It has laws about altars of earth. It has laws in, in the next chapter about slaves, uh, approval of certain types of slaves, allows selling your daughter into slavery, all kinds of crazy slavery things. Uh, Mid-21, it has a death penalty for striking a parent. Just two verses later, a death penalty for cursing a parent. So children, if you're listening. Chapter 21 ends with kind of a death penalty for causing an unborn child to die. Now, we talk about that verse sometimes in talking about abortion, and it's not because of the death penalty part associated with causing it. It's because of God's language around calling that unborn child a life. And so again, there's a use for the Old Testament that says, listen, what God is saying, that doesn't always mean that we adhere to the strictest forms of the law. Again, we don't have, we don't believe in slavery. We believe that God created all people and that they're all image bearers, that we shouldn't own people. We also believe that the death penalty is appropriate in some, well, I do, and, and our nation has a death penalty for certain circumstances, but it's definitely not for striking a parent or cursing a parent, right? It's also not for causing an unborn child to die in most cases, right? And so Exodus has the Torah law, gives them the law, the Ten Commandments, and a deep dive on how to live those out. And then, starting in Exodus 23, the Torah has festivals, these religious observances. Exodus 23, 10 through 19, has laws about these festivals, right? Followed by verse 20 is a promise again that the people will inherit the land. So are we to keep those things? Are we to to live out all those festivals? Should we be slaughtering a lamb and painting our doorways and celebrating Passover? Should we leave our comfy, cozy homes and go out and spend a week in tents reminding ourselves of the time that God took the people out of slavery and, caught, and, and cared for them through the desert. And I'll give you a simple practical answer, and then we'll read some more scripture. First off, those were all promises made to a particular group of people, the nation Israel. First, to their great-great-great-great-grandfather patriarch Abraham, to his son Isaac, to his son Jacob, who becomes the man Israel, then to his 12 tribes or sons that come from him, the tribes are the, of the nation Israel, and then to the people as they become 1.5-ish million slaves in Egypt through a, a messenger named Moses. And then Moses gives them the nation after they're delivered and they become a nation, after they're delivered from Egypt, as they are becoming a nation, getting ready to enter into their land, God gives them their law. Now, it's a, a law that is uh, a theocracy. God is to lead their nation. 
So that can't apply everywhere as God does not lead America, a democracy, the people lead America. Again, take the politics out of that, separate yourself from that, and just hear that's how we're designed to be, not a theocracy, but a democracy. And so these laws for a theocracy can't apply here. It's the same way we say Sharia law for Islam can't apply here, because we're a democracy, we make our own laws, right? We vote on things, we do things, we have politicians, etc. So what do we do with this theologically? If those are things that are told to a group of people, how do we know for sure we're not supposed to be continuing those things? Well, the entire New Testament speaks to that. Now, let me, I want to pause and I want to say something good about the Torah observant community that I think is true. I think they have a heart to understand the first two-thirds of the Bible, the Old Testament. I think that their heart is in understanding it and living it out to the best of their ability. I think a lot of Christians today, if not most American Christians, really don't do much with the Old Testament. Maybe it's moral stories or historical lessons, but they don't really understand the Torah law, the festivals, the, you know, the Feast of First Fruits, or anything like that. They don't really get that. They live primarily in the New Testament, the final third of the Bible. So to the Torah-observant community, I think what they do is they take the entirety of the Bible, and they want to understand the first two-thirds of it, and they want to do uh, a disciplined approach to that. So to them, I give credit. Here's the problem. I'm not sure that they give that same attention to the New Testament. So where many Christians live in the New Testament only, the Torah-observant Christians, I think, live primarily in the Old Testament. Now, here's kind of a pivotal theological verse for this, Ephesians 2. And the the banner over this, or the title, or kind of the nickname for this chapter is One in Christ. And Paul is writing to a church he pastored, he founded, he planted, right? And he says, therefore, remember that at one time you, Gentiles in the flesh, because this church in Ephesus was not very Jewish. And so he's writing to them. He says, you, Gentiles in the flesh, were called the uncircumcision what is by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Now, if you're unfamiliar, the covenant symbol of that covenant God gave to Abraham was that each male child on the eighth day would be circumcised. So Gentiles were uncircumcised, Jews were circumcised, and when this primary, primarily non-Jewish church in Ephesus was coming about, they were not Jewish, and so some Jewish religious leaders came to them and said, you have to undergo circumcision in order to be faithful as a Christian. So Paul's writing about that and some of the other things that the Judaizers, that's that group telling them that, what they were saying. So he tells them, remember that at one time, I'm back in Ephesians 2 now, you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, no words, not a part of that nation, and strangers to the covenants of promise. In other words, you were strangers to the Torah, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So he says, listen, he's made Jewish people and non-Jewish people all can be Christians. That's what he's saying. Verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that's another way of saying festivals, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. Therefore, killing the hostility, because Jews and Gentiles didn't get along. He goes on, he says, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who are near, talking about Jesus. He says, for through him, meaning Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. 
So then you no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So here's what Paul says, listen, you are primarily not Jewish, but the Jewish members among you, even though you guys used to be divided by faith and ethnicity, are now one in Christ. And so Paul, in the middle of it, outright says this, that Jesus abolished the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances. And so he says something that is seemingly contradictory to what we said that Jesus said. Now, Jesus for a reminder, back in Matthew 5, says this, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. But now Paul is saying Jesus abolished the law. So how can those two things both be scripture, both be true, both be consistent with one another? The answer is context. Jesus said that before he had lived his life, gone to the cross, and his answer is actually really clear. He says, until heaven and earth pass away, right, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Well, he hasn't accomplished all yet. And so just like in the beginning, do not think I've come to abolish the law of prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He said, listen, I don't delete them as if they never existed. I come to live them out. Jesus has fulfilled all the law and the prophets and in himself making a new covenant, one that is greater, one that is new, one that supersedes the old covenant. That's why when Jesus, sitting at a Passover meal with his disciples, institutes communion by saying these words, and I'll read them out of Luke 22, Jesus says, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. So he's at a Jewish Torah-observant feast called Passover, and he says this, For I tell you, I will not eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, and listen to this, likewise, the cup, after they'd eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus says, I'm going to the cross to fulfill all that has been written. He's already fulfilled the law by being sinless. He's lived the law completely, all those things that would apply to him. In other words, he hasn't broken any laws. And so his life has been consistent with the law of God. He's also kept the feasts and the festivals. He's done that, but he knows they all point to him. So here's a place to reflect on Torah-observant Christianity. Well, they have a desire to embrace the Torah and not eliminate it from the canon of Scripture, like many in Christianity have, they've kind of abandoned a lot of the teachings of Paul. They take one word from Jesus, and then they let that kind of override everything, instead of finding out how they're consistent with each other. So what do we do with the festivals? Well, Paul also writes this. He says, let no one pass judgment on you on questions of food or drink in regard to festival or new moon or Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now, I'm not going to touch on Sabbath today. I'll do that in the next episode. But the festivals, the feasts, Passover, the Feast of First Fruits, all that was a foreshadowing of Christ. It was a way to celebrate something that would point to Christ to come. 
And so Paul says to the Colossians, also a very non-Jewish church, he says, listen, don't tell them, don't, don't let them judge you for your not doing that. They were just a shadow. The substance belongs to Christ. Celebrate Christ. Now, a pointed one is often dietary law. So can Christians eat bacon? <laughs> I'm going to say, I hope so, because I do. So, but what does the Bible say? Does the Bible still have that kosher dietary law? And a lot of people will go to Acts 10, where Peter has this crazy dream about food that's not allowed to be eaten. But here's an easier way. Let's just go straight to the words of Jesus himself. In Mark 7, it says this. Jesus is talking about uh, you know, things that uh, corrupt you from the outside versus the inside. But he says this, Then you also are without understanding. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters his, not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. So Mark seven nineteen, Jesus declared all foods clean. So no, the dietary law is now not needing to be kept by Christians. Well, what about the law? What about the Torah law? Well, there's a lot to be said on this. Hebrews 10 says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. In other words, the law was also a shadow. And in other places, Paul writes to the Romans that the law was a schoolmaster, a teacher of our need for a Savior. This is a longer passage. I want to read to you from Hebrews 8, but I want to preface it with this. The letter to the Hebrews is a letter to Jewish Christians, so to people that would have had a background in the law, the Torah, and in the festivals. So here's what he says. So here's what the author says. Now, the point in which we are saying this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, obviously speaking of Jesus, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifice, thus it's necessary for the priest to also have something to offer. In other words, human priests also have sin. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. The priests who oversee the law, the Torah, the festivals, they, he says, they serve a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. Now listen, he says, For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. That's back to that Sinaitic covenant, right? But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that has a much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. But he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor, each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, the author of Hebrews says, He makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So directly, the author of the Hebrews, writing to Jewish Christians, says the old covenant is obsolete. The new covenant that Jesus inaugurated with his death and resurrection, that is what we live in.
And so we have to ask our question, our, our, ourselves the questions. So what does that mean for the law? I mean, all of us would agree, well, just because the law is now, the Torah is obsolete, doesn't mean we don't learn from it. That's why it's part of our Bible. Like, we still know that murder is wrong, not because it's a covenant to the people of Israel on Mount Sinai, but because God created humanity. And to take a life, an innocent life, is to take something that God has created, and that's, that's sin, right? And so we have a place for the law. We learn from the law. We learn about what God, what God is teaching us is what it means to love him and love others. Now, that does away with the law. That does away with a need to keep the festivals. Now, you can keep the festivals. You can keep Passover. You can keep the Feast of Booze. You can keep the Feast of First Fruits. But they are to point you to Jesus. You can do that to learn, but they're not required. Again, they have been fulfilled in Christ. Now, there is one thing that remains, one thing that is not fulfilled, that is not talked about, that is not done away with, and that's Sabbath. That's a different conversation. And so next week, next episode, we're going to talk about how Sabbath applies to the Christian and to how we can learn from that. So for now, if you like what you've heard, would you share us with your friends? Would you like us or subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcasts? Thank you for listening to Generations Church Podcast. I'm Jeff Luddington. God bless you.